We get to do something a little bit new, well, new this morning, uh, and that is we get to look at a new book in our preaching series, the book of Malachi, um, not Malachi. Um, it probably would be more like Malachi or something like that with a lot of spit, uh, but you're welcome to say Malachi for the sake of you and your neighbors around you. Um, but this is, so we have covered two long books. We covered the books of Genesis and Romans together. Um, we just finished Romans a few weeks ago. And the reason we're, there are a few reasons why we're looking at this book uh, for the next seven weeks or so. Uh, one is we simply, we want to cover the whole counsel of God and in our life together as Christians, uh, that we cover every portion of scripture, um, not just the ones that we pick and choose, but leave no stone unturned. And maybe there's a little bit of a sadistic pleasure in this for me as to just to uncover something maybe that is a little bit less common uh, than we might not have heard before just because it is there uh, to be uncovered. Um, but so it's time for us. We're moving back to the Old Testament, and this is particularly a minor prophet, uh, which we haven't covered in several years. It's also short. Um, it allows us to get through it in seven weeks, and this is... We're not doing a specifically Lenten series. Um, Lent comes if you follow the church calendar on March 1st, but this is a book that calls God's people to repentance, and so this is kind of going to function as that for us as we are leading towards uh, the Easter season. So let me say just a couple things about Malachi introduction uh, since we're starting it out. Uh, it is a minor prophet, and that just means it is short. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's less important in uh, the canon. Uh, it is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, so this was traditionally the last word before uh, we get to the New Testament. About, about roughly 400 years from the time uh, Malachi was given to when um, Jesus came on the scene. Uh, looked, if you go back 400 years from today, that was almost right when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, uh, just after the Elizabethan period in England, just to give you some context. Um, but there's some historical things that are important to this as well, which um, we need to understand so that the book is going to make sense and is also part of why uh, this is a good book for us to cover now. Uh, it was written to the post-exile portion of Israel. That, if you're familiar with the people of God, they were formed. They were called out of one man, Abraham. They were formed into the, to a, a nation. But they were worshipped idols again and again and again and again, uh, despite being called back and called back and called back. And eventually, um, God sent them into exile as discipline on them. He dispersed the whole people group uh, into Babylon um, and the provinces around. But God eventually brought them home. He brought them out of exile. He brought them back um, into their land. They rebuilt the temple. And so this is written in the period after they are back in the land, uh, after the temple has already been completed, and they are resuming their life anew after God has fulfilled his promises to them, um, and they are living into this new chapter of what it means to be a part of the people of God. But there were some problems that Malachi faced uh, as well, uh, which is why um, this, this prophecy, this letter, was written, and that despite God's fulfilled promises... Things weren't actually all that great still in the land. The temple was built, but it wasn't awesome. 
It wasn't as awesome as before. As Ezra 3 and 6 says that even some of the older ones who remembered actually weeped a lament when they saw the foundation of the temple built because it, it wasn't as great as they had remembered. They faced a lot of opposition. Uh, life was hard. Um, there were issues with Samaritans who were in the land at the time. There were issues... So Israel had this unfortunate position of being in between big empires, Egypt in the south and um, the Persian Empire at this time in the north. And so they were right on this battleground uh, between the two. And so there were several times after all their attempts to rebuild the wall of the city, it would get knocked down uh, during their battles with Egypt, which was very discouraging to them. Um, And you throw into this that there was drought, there was crop failure, there were hardships of starting a new life. Um, and Israel was just a few thousand people who were supposed to be the people, the special people of God in the middle of a vast empire that was rich and far more powerful. And so any of that specialness of what it meant to be part of God's people had kind of diluted um, as their, their culture, uh, their worship and those things were diluted as well. So you kind of get the sense here that we, this is a book that is written to people who have had God's promises and so fulfilled to them, but at the same time, things are not that great. They have things to look back on that are good, and they look at their lives in the present, and it's just kind of, eh, like, it's kind of good, but it's also kind of not good. It's like we're not there yet. You know, there's something incomplete about our life here. And there was enough discouragement we can see uh, through what Malachi addresses that this meh kind of spirituality uh, was manifesting itself in a meh kind of worship um, in in many, many aspects of the people's life. And so we get this letter that is written to a people who have great promises to fall back on and yet the realization of those promises are somewhat confusing um, in their everyday lives. So all that being said of introduction, let me go ahead and go to the passage. Uh, I will read it and pray, and then we'll look at just a few points in here this morning. Uh, We'll look at Malachi chapter 1, 1 to 5. This is God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask again that you would uh, work through your word, that you would send your spirit, open up our hearts, that we might receive it uh, as you would have, Uh, that we would again be renewed uh, with your truth, uh, particularly about your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I couldn't help but thinking of this uh, as I started into this, of my current least favorite ad campaign that is on TV right now, uh, which is AT&T's Just Okay is Not Okay. 
Um, this is, I'm not using my office to tell you who you should have wireless internet with or phone service with in any way. Um, it's just not a good ad campaign. Uh, and this is because you get the tagline, but when you look at the commercials, things are, are not actually okay. You know, they have something like, uh, uh, you know, a parachuting instructor who had never really done it before. Like, that's kind of poor. You're not, you're not even up to the level of okay at that point. Or a surgeon who had just been reinstated for malpractice or something like this. Um, so I don't like the ad campaign, um, but I like it for this morning just because it kind of illustrates uh, where the people of God are here. Um, in that, as we you know, explained before, that they are actually have witnessed um, some good things that God has done and Him fulfilling His promises to them. But then when they look at their lives, it's kind of like, I guess they're okay. I guess this is good. Um, but yet when we really look at it, things really aren't all that good. Like, there's, there's not a lot we can point to tangibly in life now that is actually encouraging um, to us. But what we find here throughout the letter of Malachi is that when this, that is true, when there's this sense uh, from the people of God that His promises and His work is just okay, that that is actually reciprocated in worship in the same way. And that the worship that is returned to God, uh, the devotion and the faithfulness to Him, is also kind of just okay. As we're going to see as we go through this, then people are still worshiping in the temple. There's not outright idolatry like there were in old days. They're doing the things that they're asked to do. But in all of them, they're not doing them very well. And it's clear their hearts aren't in it. And it is more just like a practice that they are going to uh, with no real meaningful connection um, to God and His, His loving mercies and sovereignty over them as a people. And so what we get here, as we start into this book, excuse me, it's running away, is this message about love. He is actually going after their hearts. He's going after something that is deep um, underneath them uh, that is causing this kind of lackadaisical approach to worship uh, in their life together. And this is what I want to look at. I want to, this is a great question it starts out with. We're, we're going to look at this in three parts, but we can, I believe, hopefully you can pray along with me as we do it, that we can hit these quickly and get out of here before um, too late. First, we're going to look at love questioned. Second, we're going to look at love clarified. And third, we're going to look at love perfected. So let's jump in. As we read this, if you look in verse 2, you have it printed out here on your worship folder. As he starts by introducing himself, the first thing that God is going to say to them is that I have loved you, says the Lord. But then the response is, but then Israel turns back to them and says, but you say, God says, but you say, how have you loved us? In other words, that you say that, but there's not a lot of tangible evidence uh, that that is true. And so what we have here is a crisis of perception of what God's love actually is. Um, How do you know that we are loved based on what we see uh, around us? And so Israel is, and this is a classic thing, I want to illustrate this with marriage. I know that not everybody is married in here, but I think that this will make sense um, 
nonetheless. We know that when we get married, that just um, having that piece of paper, doing the ceremony, um, and not breaking the marriage vows is not necessarily what it means to have. Um, it's not what we just you would dream of um, in a marriage. That just the technical thing um, is good, but we want much more out of it. Uh, we want uh, some kind of engagement out of love from the heart. We want proof. We want proof in life. And we especially want proof in our own terms, in the way that we might see it. And you might have said this yourself. Um, you might have heard somebody, uh, somebody else say this. It's like saying, you know, after years, we've been married and there's just a disconnect here. I feel like I'm, I'm pursuing you, my partner, and this is all just my own work. You know, I feel like I'm the only one putting anything into this and not getting anything out of it on me. I'm suffering and you either don't hear it or don't want to hear it. Or you don't seem to get it, what I want out of life, uh, what makes me tick. And now that you have me, you seem preoccupied with other things, as if now I'm un- uninteresting to you. And I honestly would be surprised if you're married, if you have not had some kind of conversation to this extent at some point along the way. That at the art of living together and loving each other in a genuine relationship, about actually seeing and getting the proof of a relationship that is alive here is hard to come by when you get two people who are different. But the point of that is this. Israel is actually saying this about God. God is saying that I have loved you as a people. And Israel is saying, you can say that, and maybe the technicalities have been true, but I don't see any evidence of how that is the case. That I need you... God, to put it in some terms here that are actually going to resonate with me so that then I will know that I'm loved. I think that this is a, a heavy thing to think about and to wonder, like, how would a, how would a people get to this place um, between a God who says that he loves them and a people who say, I have no evidence to see that you actually have How does this happen, and what do you do about it? But I think if we think about this in terms of our own lives, if you have ever been through any period of suffering at all, you know what it is like to hear the promises of God who says, I love you, and then to feel that there is no connect in my life that that is true. And my heart almost can't open up and entertain that idea because there's hurt inside The trial feels so heavy. God feels far away. He feels disconnected. When life hasn't been what we had hoped it would be, uh, it's been more work, it's been more stressful, there's been less joy, less fun than we had hoped it would have, we've had dreams unfulfilled, then it's like, what gives? I hear you say the words, but I'm struggling to make the connection here of how this Love is actually real. Like, how have you actually loved me? Where's the proof? We might even think that, you know, forgiveness of sins is great. It's a good idea. But the lived experience is one of constant disappointment, unanswered prayer, and God feels further and further and further away. And what happens here is we see the result 
is that the people of God underneath, underneath this situation is they start to drift. There is a continuing to participate in the practices, and yet there is a hardness of heart towards God and what he is up to that is actually developing. Uh, we're going to see as we go through here worship that is, that is, you know, offerings that are brought here that are their offerings, but they're not the choicest of things. We see relationships break down, strife in the people of God, those kinds of things. And it all has to do with the central act is of God saying, I have loved you. And us returning, looking at what we see in life and saying, how? How does that happen? Where is the connection between where I am now and that reality? And our author here in Malachi is actually angling this pretty specifically. Whether we might want to deal with it or not, he is saying that this is an issue. That there is actually a spiritual danger here uh, in living under this. Of a heart that would grow hard to the love that God has actually given. Of a, of a stopping to seek Him. Of a stopping to entertain what that love might be. A total disconnect between what it means to be loved and a part of His people versus what we actually see in our everyday lives. That is a love question. Is this actually love that God has given His people? Is it actually love that He has given you and me? And what, how would we know? So this is the second point, love clarified. And that He is opening us up to think about these things in these terms, but then He's going to go on. Um, and he is going to say some very curious things here as a way to, of clarifying um, how he has actually loved his people. And he's doing this in, in by comparing these nations of Jacob and Esau and the nations that came from them. If you remember this story, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Um, Esau was older. Jacob was the younger. Uh, they were sons of Isaac. And the promises, uh, the inheritance should have come through Esau. But yet God chose, out of order, Jacob, the younger brother, who was also a schemer, who was a kind of this wily guy that wasn't really deserving of anything. And yet God said, out of mercy, I'm going to choose you. And you are going to be my people instead of Esau. And I want to deal with, uh, before going on to talk to the nations, there's a hardship in here because we all want to know, is that fair? And what do we do with Esau? This sounds like very strong language to say, Esau, I have hated. And there's a couple things we have to keep in mind. One, that words mean different things depending on context. Uh, we know this in English. If you even just you take the word discipline, that could mean two different things. That could mean some form of punishment because of a wrong done. It could also mean something positive, like whenever we go to the gym and discipline our body. Um, so we know that's the case. And it gets even harder when it comes to translation and you're translating words. And what it sounds like when we read this in English is that God is against Esau and that he despises Esau. And that is not what this means. This is more like, and I'm stealing this from another pastor just because I think that this was terribly helpful. There's a, there's a verse in Luke 14, verse 26, where God says, where Jesus says, whoever does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of being my disciple. 
And we read that and we know that doesn't mean that you have to despise your family in order to become a disciple as a person of God. It is just an issue of loyalty in that, in that context about um, who, where our main loyalty lies. Ideally, even with that so, that you would then pursue your family out of love, that they might know the promises in the same way. What we have here in a similar sense is a different language, but this is not the kind of hate of God saying that he despises Esau. This has to do with the national destinies of these two people. And that Esau, who was not an inheritor of the promise, ended up living out um, in a rebellious sense. He ended up through his rebellion um, as a people forfeiting uh, those blessings that would have come uh, from faithfulness. And he actually then becomes a part of the nations who, if we're following the story, are actually the object of what God is after, of who he is to bring his good news in, of who he is to bring into himself. This is not saying this is an eternal proclamation on Esau. This is talking about two different national destinies. Okay? Jacob is different. Jacob was undeserving, but Jacob was given something very special. And that is through Jacob, God through his line, God is going to use this people to have a special relationship with him through whom he is going to communicate his good news to all nations. And it, we remember Jacob and the people of God, they also rebelled against God's promises. They're, they're not that much different. They worship idol upon idol upon idol. But the great difference here, the relationship that God brought Jacob into him, is that rather than as the people then being dispersed, when Jacob sinned, when his people sinned, the people of God, they were disciplined and they were cast out into exile. But God, through the promise again, again, and again, and again, says, that will not be the end of your story. That I will come back, and I will restore. I will bring you back to myself. I will use the discipline to accomplish my purposes. And then through you, the good news is going to continue to go out just the way I have always intended. If you read, I just did a search again, Isaiah 58 um, the ancient ruin shall be re- rebuilt. Jeremiah 30, the city shall be rebuilt on its mound. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 36, Amos 9, in two different places, the city that was destroyed is going to be rebuilt. That is a uniqueness that is different from Esau, that is to Jacob. And I think if we summarize this, that out of grace, out of no deserving of Jacob at all, then Jacob and all the people after him, the people of God, I then have the privilege of a very unique pursuit from God. You know, one writer said, which I think was good, if we follow back from the beginning, God, even after choosing Jacob, was never satisfied with his faithfulness to him. He pursued him again and again and again and again. He did battle with him to hold on to Jacob's heart. In some ways, that actually caused more hardship to him uh, than it could have. But out of mercy, this is a privileged pursuit that is given to the people of God. That God's saying, I am not satisfied where my people is until they are fully 
in communion with me the way they should. And this often involves hard things. This involves exile. This involves discipline. But this is an unending promise that started with Jacob that is given to all of God's people. That one of the special ways that he shows his love to his people is that he never lets them go. He always confronts. He always brings them back. And that is special. That is the kind of love we don't always want. But it is the kind of love often that we need. And there is no better illustration than this than than children. You know, those of you who have children, all of us have been children at one time or another. Our parents pursued us in a way they didn't with other kids. They engaged with us. They brought us back. They disciplined us in a way that nobody else's parents did because they're ours. They're special. That was a privileged relationship that we had with our parents and our children have with us that is out of love. This is not particularly what Israel was looking for, but this is a promise to him of God saying that if you will only remember who you are and if you will look at the destinies that are different from Esau and Jacob, you would see that this is actually love given out. We see that pursuit in this letter from Malachi to them, that no matter how far they drift, he continues to pursue. He continues to call them back. He continues to use the events in their lives to get their attention so that they could see him and they would return in faithfulness to God. That's love clarified here. It might not have been the answer that they wanted, like we say, but this is actually um, a way that God has poured himself out and loved his people again and again and again. And that's for us. We don't like it either. We don't like it when God brings hard things in our life. We don't like it when he says things to us that we don't like. We like it when he can get in line and make our lives go the way that we want. We are all like that. And we all pitch a fit whenever it doesn't go the way that we like. And it can be very discouraging. But part of the good news here is that God is in pursuit of you. Through his word, through worship, through the community and the people that we are here. Even through the events that he is working in our lives that might not all seem to be good. He is on the hunt, he is on the pursuit, and he won't stop. So we have to ask here, just as we end this, uh, this last point, love perfected, how is it? You know, we look at these, God addresses the audience of Malachi by pointing to these two different nations, Jacob and Esau, which is something that they can see unfolding in their own time. But we are in a different place right now. Uh, We don't look at the nation of Edom and say that, you know, what are we supposed to get get from that? That's so far in the past. So, um, you know, how do we think about this in terms of the people of God for us? And this is, in a broad sense, Malachi actually shows the continuing relationship of God with his people. Continuing to make them a people, to hold on to them, to refine them, and to um, make them prosper in unique ways. That all of the other nations would come and go, but this people is preserved so that his name can be known uh, to the ends of the earth through them. But as Malachi is writing this again, even after the restoration of God's people, it's like this is an issue that just can't go away. That there is always another prophet to come. There is always another word. There is always another form of pursuit that God has to make. Which is we have the great benefit um, 
in our time to look back and know that this is not just a story about the God's, God's people back then. This is actually a story that doesn't find its completion until it finds its completion in Jesus. And that in Jesus, the love of God is actually perfected uh, for all time. And that as people's hearts, as our hearts, as yours and mine wander, the people of God wander every day in and out of one thing or another. That through Jesus, when God sent him for us, that he was actually able to bring an end to this story in a good way. That instead of continuing to again and again and again send prophet after prophet, he sent his son to be destroyed and to be alienated and to be cast off and to be considered not God's person, though he was God himself, to bear that weight, to bear the full brunt of that so that his people can be included with our wandering hearts, as wandering as they are. Through Jesus, he brought us near to himself to a holy communion through his spirit that is a permanent reality that we have with Jesus. That despite our ups and downs, despite our encouragement, that we stand, not our own, but we stand inside of Jesus, the Son of God who was given for us. So that the restoration is not just one of a, of a city, it is not just one of the one-time thing, but it is a permanent reality that his people have. Rather than communicating by prophets, he communicates by a spirit. He exists raised to the highest throne, high above all heavenly and earthly powers, working his will for his beloved people, showing them his glory, including them in his work. And that Jesus is actually the point to where the story is leading. He is the perfect uh, means to God, but he is also the perfect demonstration of his love. That God would not leave his people forever. He would not leave them wandering, but that he would end it. He would send his son for them so that he could have them and he could bring them to himself. And so what is the implication of this? And that is, on the cross, Jesus actually brings together the mystery of the life, the hardships of our life that we have and the love of God that has been poured out. He brings together the suffering and the allowing of suffering for his own and the love of God personified together as one. Through Jesus, he has demonstrated his love. He has demonstrated far more than we can even understand. That is bigger than just forgiveness of sins. It's also a communion with God that we can't understand. It includes resurrection, but it's even bigger than that. This is a story about a full creation that is being led in a unified worship of him. It's bigger than even all things working together for good. This is a plan of glory from beginning of time to the end of time. It is some, the love of God is something that is at the same time so big and mysterious and unsearchable that we could spend our lives asking this question, how has God actually loved me? And yet, he has also made it clear in the form of one person, in the form of the cross, that he has given Jesus for us. And so we live in that tension. We live in the mystery of just of living with these experiences that we don't know what to do with all the time, of what his love means, of what he's going to do with us, what his pursuit is going to mean at any time. But he has given us a son who is always with us, who is always the perfect demonstration of his love. He is the one through whom God's pursuit can meet its end and through it cannot fail. 
that his people, the people of God, cannot be lost. And so what this is, is that this is an invitation of us as we grapple with these things and as we struggle with them to not to push Jesus away. And I don't even think it's to ask a different question of how has God loved us. But it's to change the question so that rather than it is an arms crossed and say, I don't think so. I don't think you have. I don't think that your love has actually matched up to what I would receive as love. This actually opens us up to ask the question, as we look at Jesus given for us, that we would say, God, in your mercy, how have you loved me? How have you overwhelmingly poured out your grace in Jesus to bring me home and to bring me close to you? And so as long as he is there, as long as he is still king, as long as he is still uh, the author of our lives, and as our worship, then his pursuit will never stop. But the end has been made clear, and that it will lead us to him and lead us home. You know, we sing every night. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this just in closing here, about this story that God has opened up for Israel of looking at the nations around, that as long as Edom is gone, as long as the people of God is still here, you know that I am still king, and you know that you are still special. So we sing every single night to our kids, James Taylor's, uh, You Can Close Your Eyes, is the, the lullaby that he wrote, and the first line is this, The sun is surely sinking down as the moon is slowly rising, and in this old world it must still be spinning around, and I still love you. As long as the people of God are here, as long as the earth of which Jesus is king is still spinning around, the sun rises and the moon setting, then God has loved you, and his love has not stopped. This will mean a pursuit, and that he will pursue your heart, your heart so that you can worship and enjoy his love to the fullest extent. But you have the promise from him that his pursuit will not stop. I'll stop there. Let's go pray to him that he would, that he would help us. Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, thank you for your grace. Uh, we do ask that even as we stray from you every day, that you would make good on your promises and hold on to us, that we might know you and we might be moved to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.